this passage speaks about joy. And I'll pose a question for you. Why is there joy in Christmas? And often we have these warm memories of time spent with our family and of decorations and warm colors and celebrations. And it can be easy for those things to whether it's the celebration or whether it's the personal interactions that we remember to become the substance of of Christmas for us. And the imagery of Christmas in America even evokes this time that uh, never really existed. It's kind of a hyper-reality in the way people might have wanted things to be. Having some tie to our world, but it's not really reflecting the world as it is. It's kind of like a Hallmark movie in a way. Almost like Hallmark movies are a personification of this. And there is something very human to this desire, though, the desire to see things be made better. And we live in this fallen world, and there's disease, and there's death, and there are broken relationships, and there's disappointment. And it's a common human experience to want to see good come into the world. The question is, where does that good come from? At the end of the day, the joy from gifts is temporary. And the lights will come down. We have to clean up after the party. And we have to lose all the weight that we gained. And so I ask, where is joy found? At Christmas, we can and should enjoy good things that are given to us, things that God has made. And that is the original point of the passage in Ecclesiastes where it says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But our joy should not be found in a sort of escapism that paints over the reality with some sort of merriment. Instead, we have a greater reason for joy. God who made all things, says that he will return and set right what is wrong. And he will make things right again. And in our life, our enjoyment of good things is a gift from God, and God intends to bring a greater and final fulfillment of that flourishing and joy when he does come to remake the world. And so in Isaiah 35, there is joy. And the Lord has come to set right what was broken. And when we think of Advent, we think of hymns that talk about establishing love and peace. Right? What Christ came to accomplish certainly involves that love and peace. But it's more than just a sprinkling of goodness on the hurt of the hard reality of the world around us. He actually came to set right what was wrong. And so... In the hymn, Joy to the World, that we sang this morning. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Right, Jesus coming to the world is the institution of the long-awaited redemption of creation. And so creation waits in longing expectation of that day. You'll see passages in the Old Testament that talk about that day. It's, it's a certain day, right? And so there's this connection between Christ's first and second advents, right? The first advent looks forward to the second. 
And both involve the removal of the curse of the fall. In, in the first advent, we see the kingdom of God breaking into the fallen world with Christ's church as the first fruits of a promised new creation. And Christ came to begin to remove the curse. And in the second advent, we will see the culmination of that recreation. Christ will completely remove the curse and God will walk with his people as he did in the garden. Okay. So let's read Isaiah 35 this morning. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen weak hands and make firm, feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Right, so there, there's several passages in the Old Testament that repeat these themes. And a few of them are quoted from early chapters of Luke. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. And it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Every valley should be filled, and every mountain and hill should be made low, and the crooked paths shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Notice that in both passages, there's renewal and there's fruitfulness in the midst of the wilderness. And there's also this overlap with Isaiah 61, and that's what Jesus is quoting when he's speaking in Nazareth, announcing his ministry in Luke 4. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
So in each of these passages, there's a renewal. There's a spiritual awakening that coming of the Lord is tied to. So as we celebrate the season of Advent to the coming of Christ, let's look at the promises there. They're repeated multiple times in the Old Testament. They're referenced by John the Baptist, by, by Jesus, and by the apostles. And specifically in Isaiah 35, we're going to see that first, God will remove the curse. And that God will come and save. And he will restore creation. And he will gather his people. Right, so this is where joy is found in the Advent season. Right? In Christ's coming, the promised restoration comes into the world. And we look forward to Christ's second coming when that restoration will be complete. So let's look at the first verse again. Right, placing this in context, after a series of prophecies about Assyria and Egypt, right, Isaiah turns to discussing the fate of the world and judgment. And then he, he comes to chapter 35, and he discusses this return from exile. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So this prophecy opens talking about the wilderness. And we see this imagery of the wilderness in several places. First in the exile from the garden. Right? And then, again, in the exodus from Egypt. And there's this contrasting imagery of garden and wilderness that we see running through Scripture. The good land and the desert. Even as Israel wandered through the wilderness, the instructions for building the temple had the contrasting imagery of the garden built into them built into the design of the temple. And so throughout Scripture, we see these two contrasting motifs. Garden is the place where God dwells with his people, and the wilderness, the place where they're cast out because of sin. And yet, there's this promise of restoration in the midst of the wilderness. In Exodus, God is redeeming a people and preparing them to enter the good land. And in the prophecies from Isaiah, we see the restoration of the garden and the removal of the curse. It's in, some people call it a new exodus. But it's that and more. It's the ground restored. Right? There is joy, and, and God has come to walk with people again. But all of this assumes something. It assumes that there is a curse. So we need to understand what the curse is. Right? It's, it's something that affects all of creation. And so let's take a quick look at Genesis 3 and just to establish a better foundation for what the curse is. And after the first sin, God pronounced this curse upon Satan, Eve, and Adam. And in Genesis 3, 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you should go. And dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall eat, or you shall bring forth your children, sorry. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. So let's, let's highlight a few things from this. First, the curse is real. It impacts us. Right? It extends to creation itself. There's broken relationships. There's enmity between husband and wife. There's pain and childbearing. There's laborious work. And the created world becomes a hostile wilderness rather than a garden. It bears thorns and thistles. And the world around us reflects the curse of Genesis 3. Right? It's real. Do you see the effects of the curse in your own life or in your relationships? And we also see the gospel promise. E- even within the curse to Satan, uh, some folks will point to a, a seed of the gospel there promised in the future offspring. And, and so there's this midst of the curse, there's this hope for redemption. And that line of hope carries through history and is recorded in Scripture, throughout Scripture. And the imagery that we see in Isaiah 35 is the undoing of that curse. The joy that comes in Christ is that God will remove the curse. Sin and its effects will be undone. And he announces that in the Gospels... Right? This, is, this, is, this is an element of what Christ came to do. And he is beginning that work through the new covenant, through regenerated hearts, through a new people who he calls his church. But that's, not, that's, it's, it's, that's just the first fruit of what is coming. God says that a day is coming when he will restore creation itself. And he will bring what is right and good to all things. So let's look at verse 3. And we see the impact of the curse in our lives, but the promise is that God will bring restoration. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You A little further ahead in verse 8, we see that these folks are heading down a highway to return to the Lord. And so they are pilgrims. But then looking back at verses 3 and 4, God coming and saving them should remind us of the Exodus again. Remember the themes of the Exodus. God will preserve a people in the midst of the wilderness and will deliver them safely to the promised land. God will come and save his people. He did it once, and the prophets are full of prophecies that point to where he will do it again. And so in light of this context, these are the instructions that God gives to them. Strengthen weak hands. Make firm feeble needs. Let the anxious heart be strong and fear not. The point is that they don't have to live in fear because God is the one who will save them. Right? God is the one who will fulfill his promises. It also says that God will come with vengeance. 
This reminds us of the connection between salvation and judgment. God will bring judgment upon the world, but that is part of the restoration of the world. And judgment will come and the earth will be restored. In the end, those who do not look to God will see judgment. And those who are trusting in Christ, they will be gathered and they will see the removal of the curse. So just like the flood, our salvation comes in the midst of judgment. And judgment will come, but God's people are safe in him. Again, looking back to Isaiah 61 that, that Jesus quoted, if you go read the passage from Isaiah, uh, that section leads into this that says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Again, you can see the, the vengeance of the Lord tied to this restoration and rescue that comes to those who trust in him. And Jesus uses that same passage in Luke 4 and tied to his ministry. Right? This is fulfilled in your presence. And so, the first advent with the promised fulfillment of the second advent are both there in that passage. So there's this connection between what is accomplished in Christ's coming in the Gospels and what is coming. And in terms of the kingdom of God, we sometimes call this the already and not yet, right? There's an aspect of the kingdom that is now, and there's an aspect of the kingdom that is coming, in Hebrews 12, actually references this Isaiah 35 passage. But it's making application to the church. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So the bottom line here is the already is a down payment that came with the first advent of Christ. And that's, that's one role that the church has is to fulfill that. And we are to live in this world as a new people. And so Hebrews alludes to Isaiah 35 and makes this present application for us. This passage may be about the future and we wait for it with great expectation. But as God's people call to him, it should be a present reality in our lives. And that's where the already meets the not yet. So knowing the salvation of the Lord has come we should take courage and live in light of the coming kingdom. The kingdom is now found in new life in Christ, and the kingdom is coming when God will restore all things. So the joy that we have in the Advent now should be pointing towards the full expression of joy that is coming. The Lord comes to save. Right? Think about what that means. He comes. We don't have to search far and wide. We don't have to find him in some hidden corner. The Lord comes to redeem a people. And those people can take heart, have joy, because we know God's plan. And if you struggle to find joy in your present reality, first, are you looking to Christ in the midst of your circumstances? And second, do you look forward to what God will do? 
do you trust that he will come and save? Okay. So we see the impact of the curse on creation, but the, the promise is that God will restore creation. Let's look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, where, where have we heard that before? Yeah. These are miracles recorded in the Gospels. Right? God has the power to restore creation, both physically and spiritually. And when Jesus heals, it reinforces that he has the power to set things right. So we can work hard, but there are some things that we cannot fix. And as Jesus healed, he points to the reason he came, to bring new life, to undo the curse, and to set things right. Blindness also represents a lack of sight, to see the truth of the gospel. So Christ gives us eyes to see the reality of the curse and the truth that he comes to undo that curse. So the lame will leap like a deer in Acts 3. We see the example of the lame man who was healed and he leapt. The mute will sing for joy. As God brings restoration, it results in praise given back to him. And it says that fools will give, be given sense to see things rightly. They have eyes to see. Right, so the see is not just blindness brought to sight. There's a spiritual reality to it. Even the fool can see the way. And this restoration extends to the earth itself. The wilderness. Right? So, so here it's pulling in that theme of the garden versus the wilderness. The wilderness itself, which for them would have been a desert, it brings forth water. The sands become a pool. In the dry places where the jackals haunt Suddenly, you find plants that you would find in the wetlands. And that restoration of creation is echoed in Romans chapter 8. If you look at Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope 
that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what it already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. First fruits. Redemption begins with his people. They are the first fruits. And that's the already of the kingdom. But redemption will extend to all creation. We're waiting that day, which has not yet come. So the first fruits of Christ's coming points towards this expectation of complete redemption. And that's what Paul is dealing with there. The already anticipates the not yet. So in the New Testament, we see these prophecies as being fulfilled in Christ in his first advent, yet there are aspects of those same prophecies that will be fulfilled in that day. So God's restoration should change lives. And does your life reflect the wilderness or the garden? Christ's church is supposed to be the first fruits. It's supposed to be the garden. But woe to us if our fellowship reflects the wilderness. If our life bears thorns and thistles. So if you want to eagerly await him, then seek the humility and willingness to be made new. We need a new creation. And you're not going to get there by trying to look the part. Right? New life is given by the Spirit of God. Again, just pulling in from Isaiah, spending a lot of time in Isaiah today, but Isaiah 59, it has a reference to the idea of the new covenant. It says, the Redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. Right? The restoration comes by the Spirit. So that God changes hearts. And the question is, has God changed your heart? Right? That's the point of the new covenant in Jeremiah. We have to have a new heart. In John's gospel, it says you must be born again. Right? Paul, in his letter to Titus, says it's by the washing of regeneration, renewal through the Holy Spirit. The restoration of the earth will not come from enforcing moral standards. It won't come by putting better systems in place. It will only come as people are made new. They are the first fruits of the new creation. So come to Christ being willing to be made new. Okay, last section. We see the, the impact of the curse in our separation from, from God. But the promise is that God will restore that fellowship and will gather his people. So in verse 8, it says, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow 
in sighing shall flee away. They are gathered. Right? The highway, the way of holiness, it's a highway for the righteous, those who are gathered together by the Lord. And when the Lord comes, he makes a clear path for people to come to him. So clear that even the fool will not go astray. This will happen in that day, right? a future day that's coming. And they do not have to travel across dangerous, uninhabited land. Right? They don't have to take a difficult off-road journey. No, the Lord makes a way to gather his people. It's a way of holiness. God brings them together as a new people to worship the Lord. Think of this as the undoing of the exile okay, from the garden. So they, they have protection. The path is secured by the work of the Lord. Travelers do not have to fear the lion or vicious beast. The redeemed can walk on it in peace. They have gladness. Right? Those who are ransomed by the Lord will return to Zion with singing. And they have unending joy. What does that sound like? It's the final restoration of all things when Christ comes again. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. This is a major theme in Scripture, in the future gathering of those who the Lord has redeemed. And that is the joy that we have in the Advent season. The first Advent points towards this future return, and God's people await his kingdom to come in its fullness. And we see this in Revelation 21. Not going to go through Revelation 21 in detail, but just two points from there. In, in verse 5, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And then in verse 22, he said, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, there's no temple there. The, the people will walk with God, they will live in the presence of the Lord. This is what they had in the garden. And Revelation 21 is the garden restored. And that's why there's no need for a temple. The temple is like this little garden in the midst of the wilderness. But now the wilderness is gone. Thorns and thistles no longer infest the ground because the curse is undone. And God walks with his people again. And the flourishing that goes with the garden should go with his people. Right? So God's people, you've heard the imagery of God's people are the temple. of The imagery of the garden should apply to them. That this is where God dwells with mankind until the complete restoration comes. Christ came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. It's found now among his people, but we await the final restoration that will come and there will be no need for a temple. So the point is this. When, when God is making all things new, he will fix what is broken, and the fellowship that mankind had with God in the garden will be restored. That's the joy of the Advent season. God with us. In his first Advent, which is present, which there is joy in announcing that salvation has come, 
And then the second advent in which there is joy in seeing the world made new and full redemption accomplished. So, where do we find joy? It's easy to find joy in any number of of places. People find joy in gifts. People find joy in what they think of as peace, right? Cessation of hostilities within their family. Can we, can we make it down the road without fighting, please? Right. People find joy in just a special time of year. And I would propose to you that those things are really just helping us to diagnose the symptoms of the problem. So we grasp for joy in those places, but really it just points us where the problem lies. It points us towards seeing the curse more clearly. And, you know, people have this nostalgia. I talked about nostalgia for an 1880s that never existed. It's, it's, It's not bad necessarily to have some sense of nostalgia but we just don't go back far enough. Right? Our nostalgia should be for the garden. That's what we should be looking to. The celebration should point to the substance. And that substance is that the curse is removed and the garden is restored. So, know that Jesus came to reverse the curse. Right? This is the promise expectation that is thread throughout Scripture. Sometimes we live in this world as though the curse is normal. Right? We, we kind of normalize it. We're, we get along as best we can until that day. Right. We make the best of it and we come to expect it, but Jesus came to reverse the curse. And that is where we can have joy. Second, know that Christ's first advent means that renewal has come. Right? As God opens blind eyes to see the goodness of his kingdom, renewal begins with his people. If you've not trusted in Christ, if you do not know that renewal in your own life, then know that Christ came to give sight to the blind and to set captives free. My prayer is that that would be real in your own life. And then third, long for the Lord to come, for the restoration of the world and the gathering of his people. As long as you go through life, long for renewal at the time when God will restore. You restore the fellowship that we had in the garden when God walked with his people. Look forward to the future, knowing that that redemption has already begun. The first coming is a down payment. The kingdom here is available to those who turn to the Lord. And yet, we wait for it to come in its fullness. God will fulfill his promises, and we wait for him. So long for that day. And this is the culmination of the big storyline of Scripture. God created man's sin, bringing the curse, and Christ redeems, undoing the curse. 
and God will bring restoration to all of creation. So may each of us find joy in the coming of Christ at Advent. And far as the curse is found, God will restore.